and turn to Matthew chapter 8. Pick it up back about verse 18. All right. I'd be really curious. Does we have anybody that's even attempted to climb Mount Everest? That'd be really cool to just feel like as a pastor, I'd brag about. Oh, I got someone in our church that did Everest. Anybody? I'm looking. Ladies? No? Okay. Our dream team? No? Okay. Really? All right. Well, the Mountaineers? No, no. Okay. No, no, no one is. Has anybody even thought about it? Uh, okay. There we go. All right. The Corals family right there. I saw them. Okay. You know, if you're even thinking about do this, uh, climbing Everest, I mean, huge feet, a lot of people lose their lives. What happens? You have to do a lot of training and prepping, and then you're going to come to a base camp. They actually have two base camps. One of them's on the Nepal side and the other in Tibet. They're, one's about 17,500 feet up. The other's about 18. And when you get to base camp, it's an opportunity for you to get acclimated, to like learn how to live without oxygen or just hardly any. You get used to the conditions. You actually see Everest and you're getting a, it's no longer pictures anymore. This is the real thing. And you start figuring out how you're going to go up there. You've already kind of worked on a plane, a plan. You're getting to know your guide and you're starting to get a real feel of what it's going to look like for you to climb Everest. Now, before you start climbing, you got to have clarity. You got to know how you're going to get up there, and you need to know who you're going to go with. It's one thing to climb Everest. It's far more serious to know who you're going to go with as you go through life in this world that is not only difficult, but dangerous. And when we come to Matthew chapter 8, it's kind of like base camp basics. Jesus is going to instill in his followers What does it look like to follow me? When you go through the Gospel of Matthew, it's really like a discipleship training. He he kind of starts all the way at the very beginning. And what he's doing is that we move through this book. He wrote it in such a way as to shape the minds and the hearts of people who will truly follow Jesus Christ and know him as Lord. And so what Matthew does is he records discourses, teachings of Jesus. And at the same time, he also records a variety of experiences that these initial disciples went through. So they understood what does it look like to walk with Jesus Christ, Lord of life, in the midst of a difficult and dangerous world. And the first thing that he, we're going to come to today is that you've got to be, have a clear understanding of the demand of his call. The verses we're going to look at today, not often preached on. Not popular, especially in American Christianity. We like to just basically say, tell people, hey, hey, all you have to do is just believe in Jesus. Just say you believe in Jesus. Will you do that? I'll, I'll leave you alone. You'll be fine. You'll have automatic ticket to heaven. Just, just say you believe in Jesus. When Jesus presents what it looks like to follow him, It's very different than common day American evangelism. Look at this. Chapter 8, verse 18. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. So here they are. They're over in Capernaum. They're on the west side. Jesus says, I want you to cross this sea. We're going on to the other side. Now, you need to know something. These fishermen, most of Jesus' early disciples were fishermen. They had actually never likely been to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Oh, yeah, they'd spent tons of time on the sea. In fact, they made their living fishing. But the other side, the east side, that's where the Decapolis was. That is where that is Gentile territory. No Jew would go into a land that is so unclean and so very wicked. It was considered demonic, unclean, wicked. They would never go there. 
And so when Jesus says, listen, boys, we're going to go to the other side of the lake, they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Jesus is breaking all sorts of rules. He's touching lepers and cleansing them. He's actually interfacing with Roman centurions. And now he's telling them, we're going to cross this lake. And part of the reason why he's breaking away from the crowds is, yes, Jesus wanted to minister to the masses, but he was especially interested in mentoring and discipling his men. And that meant that he'd have to break away and take them to places where he could make those investments. He'd have to give them experiences that would truly help them understand what does it look like and what does it mean to follow him. And he'd have to train them. And so he tells them, we're going to go to the other side of the sea. Now, there was other people that were gathered that were very much considering following Jesus. One of them should surprise you. You find in verse 19, then a scribe came and said to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, this is startling because these scribes, they were kind of like Jewish elite. Okay, now, most of the people in uh, Israel had the ability to read and to write. The Jews were uh, very careful to make sure that their children had some rudimentary knowledge on reading and writing. But not everybody had access to material to read, especially the scriptures. And so what developed in the ancient world were people that specialized in the writings of Scripture. They were known as the scribes. They were like modern day lawyers. They understood the law, God's word, inside and out. They were masters of the Old Testament. They were the seen as the authorities and they were the teachers. And so if you had any question about the word and about what God had given in these Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, you check with the scribes. What is interesting is that the Pharisees. The scribes, the Jews as a whole, for the most part, rejected Jesus, even in the face of him doing some amazing miracles. What's startling about the scribes is that if anybody should have known who Jesus is, it should have been the scribes. They had seen, studied what the Messiah would look like. They knew the prophecies. There's about 330 prophecies regarding Messiah. They would have had them down. And when Jesus shows up on the scene... The scribes and the Pharisees actually reject him because he starts encroaching on their territory. No longer are people interested in following the Pharisees and the scribes. The masses are now starting to turn their attention to Jesus. And so the scribes, instead of saying, we want to follow you, you are the promised one the scriptures revealed. For almost without exception, they reject him, except we find this one scribe, he breaks from the pack. He's no longer functioning with group mentality. He sees something in Jesus. I'm sure the pieces were starting to come together. And he says to Jesus, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And this is what it looked like when you wanted to be an understudy to a leading rabbi, a scholar. You would go and appeal to them and say, I would like to study under you. I'd like to live with you. I'd like to be with you. I would like to learn from you. Well, we would think like. This is awesome. I would have bet Jesus is really excited that this scribe is finally seeing who he is. And so here's this golden opportunity. Jesus should say, come on, man, this is going to be great. We got one of the scribes with us. But look what Jesus says in verse 20. Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests. I'm sure he's listening. What are you talking about? But the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. What Jesus is doing is he's helping to clarify what will this look like to follow Jesus. 
I'd imagine it looked rather glamorous. Jesus doing these miracles, the Sermon on the Mount, where he's commanding the masses and he's teaching them. And he's not like the scribes and the Pharisees. He teaches with authority. He said, you've heard this. Let me tell you what this law means. He's not quoting other people or I think this means this. He says, let me tell you what it means. And furthermore, he ends his message by saying, listen, the bottom line is that I know you and that you know me. And if you don't, you're out. It doesn't matter what sort of works or even miracles you may have thought you have done. If you do not build your life upon me and my word, you have no part with me. And people were attracted to him. He's doing miracles. And so this scribe thought this would be the man. But Jesus is trying to help him understand if you're going to follow me, it's going to cost you. There's going to be sacrifice involved. It's not always going to be popular. You're a scribe. You know the Old Testament scriptures. You know that the Messiah is going to be rejected. You know Isaiah 53 very well, the suffering servant. It's a book that you've specialized in. And you know that I'll be rejected, that I will actually be uh, broken. My body will be scourged. I will be pierced for transgressions. Do you really want to follow me? Birds, they got nests. Foxes, they got holes. But the son of man, and that is a loaded term. That is a messianic term. It speaks of Jesus' humanity, his humility. But crystal clear in the minds of anybody that studied the Hebrew scriptures is that when you use the title son of man, it spoke of Messiah. I give you Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. You might want to just write that down and you look at that this afternoon. It speaks of the eternal son of God, the promised Messiah, who will gather the nations Every tribe, every tongue, every nation to him. When he says the son of man, that was, by the way, Jesus' most popular way of referring to himself. He used it, I think, about 83 times. He called himself the son of man to point of his humanity, humility, but also that he's the promised Messiah. He says, I've got nowhere to lay my head. Do you want to follow me? Now, this morning, I'd say, hey. Anybody interested in following Jesus? Everybody like, yes, I'm here. I'm at Fellowship Bible Church. Of course I want to follow Jesus. Do you? What happens if Jesus has different plans or different dreams than you do? Sure, when it's, it's great. Right now, everybody pat you on the back. That's so great. You want to follow Jesus. What does it look like on Monday when you're the only Christian on the force? Or the only believer in your team? Or perhaps even on your street? And it's unpopular and you're going to take a few ribs. What is it? What will happen when when there's a call for sacrifice financially or to give of your time? What are you doing wasting all your time at that church? Are you still willing to follow Jesus? What Jesus is doing, he's saying, if you really want to follow me, make it crystal clear. What does this look like? Now, let me be clear. Salvation, redemption and freedom for you and forgiveness of your sins is absolutely by grace. God gives us this gift. You could never earn it. You could never pay for it. Even on your bad days, when you get like an F for behavior, you still are automatically secure because of the merits of the grace of Christ. He's paid for it in full. But if you're going to follow Jesus, he says, you need to know what you'll be facing. You know, it's interesting. Have you ever seen a parade where they have like soldiers, real soldiers marching? They got their guns and they got their dress uniforms on. And it is impressive. And sometimes little kids go, oh, I want to be like that. They see all that flash. 
I see those people snapping to attention. They're marching. They look strong. They're tough. Man, everybody stands back and gives them their full respect. People extend hands and say, thank you for your service to our country. But you know, what you don't see are all the hidden costs of being a soldier. Those endless marches, at times exhausting, grueling, bloody battles, arms getting blown off, people dying in mass, some in unmarked graves. Yeah, it's one thing to sign up for the army or the marines when you see them marching by or see a commercial like, ah, I want to be just like that. It's another when the bullets start flying, isn't it? Jesus wants us to get a real picture of what it will look like to follow him. There's going to be sacrifice involved. Well, there's another guy that was, I'm sure he was listening to this. It's like, hmm, that guy didn't do it quite right. I got it. And so look at this. Verse 21, another of the disciples. Look at See that? Mafetes, a disciple, a learner. Okay? doesn't mean that you're absolutely committed to Christ, but you're learning about him. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, see that in verse 21? Permit me first to go and bury my father. Now, at first reading, you might think like, oh, man, that's unfortunate. This man's dad just passed away. He happens to be by Jesus. He says, hey, I got a funeral tomorrow. Let me just take care of that. And I'm with you. That's not what's being said. First of all, the Levitical law actually prohibited you interacting with people in a time of loss like that. You would be in a period of mourning. You wouldn't be engaging rabbis. You would be in a period of mourning and you would be taking care of the issues related to the death of your relative in the case of a father. What this is, what this man is saying, and this was kind of a common phrase back then, is that let me be with my family and my family business until dad passes away. At that time, I will receive my inheritance. And so what he's saying is that, Jesus, I want you to know that I want to follow you. I just want to do it on my terms. Okay? I'd like to, I want to follow you, and I want you to know that, Jesus. I'm going public with this. I want to follow you, but let me just first do the right thing and, and just bury my dad whenever he dies. If his dad is young, this could be 10, 20, 30 years down the road. And Jesus says this, verse 22. He said to him, Follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. Now, whoa. <laughs> This is Jesus, meek and mild, always have their... What in the world is he saying? Well, he's using a proverbial figure of speech that was used that basically meant this. Let the world take care of the things of the world. Let the spiritually dead take care of the things of the world, but you follow me. Now, is Jesus saying, like, you just forget about your parents and reject them? It doesn't matter? Actually, absolutely not. And Matthew is going to make this crystal clear in Matthew chapter 15. I think it's like verses 1 through 9. He actually goes through a whole discourse about talking about honoring your parents. And he actually confronts the Jews that weren't doing it and say, you have totally missed this. You are to honor your parents. What Jesus is doing, he's crystallizing your mind. There is going to be one who is first and foremost in your thoughts, your attention, and your affection. And Jesus says, It's got to be me if you're going to follow me. A lot of folks are interested in adding Jesus to their life. Hindus tell them about Jesus like, hey, that's great. I got a whole bunch of gods. I'll add Jesus to the whole mix. That'd be great, huh? 
American, American Christians. Yeah, I've got fire insurance. I, I believe in Jesus. But in effect, he has no call upon their life. They will follow Jesus when it's convenient. But don't let that, that relationship with Christ interfere with their morality or their lack thereof or how they see right and wrong. They'll follow Jesus when it's convenient, and when they don't want to, they will just kind of amalgamate into the world, and like a chameleon, they will match their surroundings. And Jesus is saying, that will not work. You want to follow me, we'll do this on my terms. And I must have first place. That means that in our affections, in our heart, our love for him, our willingness to obey him, to worship him, to sacrifice for him, to give to him, to actually follow what he has to say. Do you know that the king has spoken in his word? He's actually given us his spirit to do everything he said. And he fully intends that we, his people, will do as he says. Because why? We follow him. And it's really interesting. Jesus, on multiple occasions, I I like to refer to him as like crowd thinning statements, just says things that just blows people out of the water. And like, whoa. You mean to follow you looks like that? Utter allegiance first and foremost? See, what we must understand at the, is that the Lord of all must be Lord over me. Well, if you're at base camp, one of the first things you need to know is you need to know the demands of his call. If you're going to follow Jesus, he is to be first and foremost, well, what else do we need to know? That's pretty serious. Something else that you and I need to know at base camp. We need to know the depth of his power. Just who is this then that we are following? Well, that's what we're going to learn as we pick it up here in verse 23. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. I, I, want you, I don't want you to miss that. Do you see this? And, and as you were making ways through the verse, what he's talking about is following him. Jesus just laid it, laid it out there. And there's a couple of guys that are like, oh, I'm not sure if I want to follow you on those terms. But here we see leadership and here we see the disciples, his men. They're what? They are following him. They get in to the boat. And remember, when they're getting into the boat, they're like, Jesus said, we're going to the other side. We have never been to the other side. We don't belong there. That's Gentile country. But obviously to follow him means first and foremost. And if he says we're going to the other side, I don't know what that looks like, but I will get into this boat by faith and I'm going to trust him. And so they do. And they are about to learn a lesson about the depth of his power. Well, verse 24, something their worst nightmares become a reality. Verse 24, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being covered with the waves. But Jesus himself was asleep. Now, let's just talk a little bit about here. Sea of Galilee, it's 13 miles from north to south, seven miles across. It's, it's actually 
690 feet below sea level. Okay, so it's low. And then you've got Mount Hermon. That's about 9,200 feet above there. And so these winds from the north come down and they hit that warm water. So the cool winds come. They hit that warm water at the Sea of Galilee. It just comes rushing down. And very quickly, even today, the Sea of Galilee can just become torrential mess. And you can have these big storms. Now, these men had been through lots of storms. They're fishermen, right? Okay, they're not going to be phased by a few storms or some big waves. And these waves could be seven to nine feet. They'd seen storms before, but they hadn't seen a storm like this. Why, they, they didn't know what was going to happen to them. They're, they are just like, oh, my, we, we're going to perish this. In fact, they're doing everything they can as the fishermen. Because, by the way, they don't want to look bad, right? I mean, the last thing a fisherman wants to do is like, hey, I need a little help out here, right? Right, I can handle this, right? I can go through storms. But they came to a point where they realized that they couldn't go through this storm. Verse 25, and they came to him, speaking of Jesus, and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. They came to the conclusion they're going to die. Now, here's something really interesting. Jesus is sound asleep in the boat. That tells you a couple things. One, obviously the ministry that he was doing was extremely fatiguing. And second of all, he is fully human, fully God, fully man. You want a picture of his humanity? Look at Jesus passed out in the back of the boat in the midst of a storm. Let me tell you something else that you might find somewhat assuring, some of you, is that if you are a really sound sleeper, you're like Jesus, okay? And uh, you need to know that you're kind of on the path of sanctification. And if you're looking for progress, like you just tell your friend, your spouse, look, at least I sleep sound. I'm like Jesus, okay? So they're, they're come to a point where they believe they're going to perish. They're in this storm. The Greek word seismos is where we get like seismograph or seismic speaks of this shaking. They just literally, the, the sea's shaking, they're shaking, their winds are whipping, their sails are being busted everywhere, the waves are just coming over, they're being tossed up and down like an elevator that's been cut from its cable. And then the next thing you know, they're just rising up. They're, they actually think they're going to die, and so they want Jesus to do something about it. What they probably want him to do is help bail out water or to exercise some sort of leadership because they believe they're going to die in this, and so they come to him, and they say, Save us, Lord. They got it right. You're God. We got that, but we're dying. We're going to perish. And so they're at this point where they think that they're, just, they're not going to make it. And they have one of the necessary ingredients of true faith. And that is you come to a point where you realize you're absolutely helpless. Until you come to a point where you are at the end of your rope, you have no resources to meet the demands that are in front of you. In this case, they simply could not overcome the storm. Perhaps they even saw their boat starting to break up. They certainly were cracking up on the inside. And they said, Jesus, we are helpless we're going to perish. Now, you might be just sitting there kind of doing the armchair quarterback thing. And we're pretty good at this because we have these things in our houses called TV. And, you know, and you see this like a football season. There's the guys like, why don't you just block that guy? What are you doing letting him get into the quarterback like that? And you're sitting there and you're eating your little Tostitos there and you've got your can of Mountain Dew there. And you're and you're armchair quarterbacking that lineman there and telling him what he should do. But that's not you in front of the 345-pound trained guy to rip apart your quarterback who wants to take you apart as well. And so until you're in the storm, you really don't understand 
just what they're facing. These men think they're going to die. And if you're going to understand what Jesus is about to do and what he's teaching them, you've got to put yourself at a point where you think, I am probably not going to make it. When you get there, then you can understand the lesson that Jesus is going to teach them. He says to them in this teachable moment, verse 26, he said to them, why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Why are you afraid? You see, this storm revealed something about their faith, that their faith was small, that there was something missing. They didn't really understand who Jesus is And hence, they came to the wrong conclusions about life, about the storm, and about who he is. And so what he does is he uses this storm to teach them and to address their faith. Now, if Jesus was concerned about the storm, you know, he would have like, whoa, this is bigger than I was expecting. Whoa, why don't you guys wake me up earlier or something like that? I would have helped you get the water out of the boat or something. That's not it at all. Jesus is absolutely not concerned about the storm. He's concerned about his men. Where is their heart? Do they believe? Do they have faith? And before he does anything about the storm, he actually addresses these men in a very teachable moment. I mean, things are whipping around, water's going everywhere. And he looks into these guys' eyes and he goes, why are you afraid, you men of little faith? I don't think he's trying to slam them. He's trying to help them understand right now where you're at, You're at a point of very little faith. I intend you to take you much farther than that. Let me tell you about fear. Fear is the adversary to faith. Fear paralyzes you. You get afraid about what you're facing. I might run out of money, about this problem, this health crisis. What could happen over here? And you will eventually come to a point where you do nothing. Fear paralyzes us. Faith allows us to move forward because we are trusting God with the results. And so Jesus addresses their faith. Why is your faith so small? And so in this teachable moment, Jesus is going to show them that he is the Lord of the storm. He is the Lord of life and he is the Lord of all creation. He addresses these men. Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? And then after looking his men in the eyes, Then he got up, verse 26, he rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. It went from torrent, chaos, despair, we're going to die. Jesus makes some sort of statement. It could have been, be still. And all of a sudden, instantly, the sea becomes like glass. The wind, vanish. It went from their hair is just getting blown all over. They're probably holding on to the side of the boat. And all of a sudden, still, like, they're just on glass. And they're looking at Jesus, verse 27, and the men were amazed and said, what kind of a man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Who is this? Obviously, when he healed that leper, they're like, whoa. Or he healed from a distance that centurion slave. But to stop the winds and the raging storm by just speaking, why you have to be God. And for those of you who have spent some time in the Psalms, 
That is one of the attributes of God. Like in Psalm 65, verse 7, it says this, Who stills the roaring of the seas and the roaring of their waves and the tumult of the peoples? Only one can do that. And he is God. And so they see Jesus. They see Jesus like they've never seen him before. He can speak and he can silence even a storm. He must be Lord over all. Now, it's hard to imagine a more striking demonstration of God's sovereignty than this scene. If you have any question in your mind, is Jesus really God? Is he really Lord of the universe? This is recorded, and these experiences went through to make it crystal clear in your mind. Absolutely yes. What kind of man is this? For them, they saw deity on display in the life and this man they call Jesus. Who is he? Now, one of the things you need to know when you're at base camp You need to know some of the basics. You need to know the depth of his power. And you also need to understand the demands of his call. Now, when it comes to storms, all of us have to go through them. You need to know that everybody you're sitting around is either in a storm, just got out of one, or is just about ready to go into one. Hopefully not because they're sitting by you this morning. But that is the nature of life. We go through storms. So whether you're facing a hurricane or a tornado or a health crisis or having heart problems, whether you're facing a civil unrest or you got cancer, whether you've got family problems or you're going through financial reversals, the nature of this life is that you and I go through storms, physical, emotional, mental, even at times spiritual. But why? Why do we have to go through these storms? I'd like to give you three reasons, because that's probably a huge question in the minds of a lot of folks here today. Why do we have to go through these storms? Why not Jesus just make it just smooth sailing all the way? Let me give you one reason. First of all, the conditions in which we live, the environment in which our journey takes place. We live in a fallen world filled with sinful People, do you know that even creation itself groans under its dysfunction? Things are not the way they should be. There is a curse upon the world and it is called sin and things are broken. And there is there's a reason why we face all these storms. One of those reasons is that we live in a broken world. And furthermore, we have bodies that break down. There is no fountain of youth that you could just kind of drink this water and you never have a health issue. We live in bodies that break down. We're in a world that is breaking down. It does not work the way it intended. One of the reasons why you and I go through storms, physical, emotional, anyway, is because we live in a world that's broken. Let me give you another reason why we go through storms and why we must pass through them. Sometimes it's consequence and correction. Sometimes it's consequences for sinful, wrong choices that you and I have made. Or God is bringing about correction in our life to get us back on track. Some people have a way of making a disaster of their life through sinful choices. They know the right thing to do, and they choose not to do it. They know the path to walk with God, and they go, I think I'll take a left here, or I'm going to go right. And they go, and they make a huge mess of their life, and, and they're just like, oh, this is terrible. 
That's right, it's terrible. How did I get in this? Well, let's see here. Make got started with your secretary. And then it moved on with your pornography issue. Or then, you know how those finances that you kind of worked, those books, and you had two sets of books? That explains a lot of your situation right now. Sometimes we put ourselves in the storm because we make decisions that are sinful and wrong. And at other times, God actually brings about correction in our life. You want an example of that? There's a guy in the Bible. His name is Jonah. You might have heard of him. And uh, God had a little mission for him. Listen, I said, I got some people over there in in, uh, Nineveh. And uh, I know you don't like them, and they are misery, but I'd like to do a work there. And I want to send you. Huh. Jonah's like, you know what? This is a good time for vacation, like in Spain. And so he heads the exact opposite direction. He gets on a ship, heading to Tarshish. He knows full well God says, I want you to go to Nineveh. Uh-uh, I don't like those people. I hate them. No way. I'm going on a vacation. I'll think this over on a beach somewhere, long ways from here. And what happens? God brings a storm. And he brings that storm into a point why? Because he's going to bring Jonah to a point where he thinks, where Jonah understands, you know what, it's probably a real good idea. I follow God and do as he says. Now, this wasn't the case for these men in this particular storm that we saw today. They're not going through correction, okay? They're not facing consequence. But let me do tell you this. God wants you to follow him. And he is so committed to this journey where you grow in your relationship with Christ that if need be, He is fully capable of putting you on your back and getting you to look straight up and to finally listen and say, okay, Lord, I think I want to go your way. Let me give you a third reason. A third reason why you and I have to go through storms. And that is that sometimes Jesus himself sends us into the storm. That was the case here. Whose idea was it to go to the other side of a lake. Uh, that would be Jesus. Do you think that Jesus had no idea there's going to be a storm? <sighs> I don't think so. If he could stop it, he certainly knew it was coming, right? You see, Jesus took these men through the storm. And so, no matter what reason why you're going through a storm, our response remains the same. And let me just tell you this. I wouldn't spend all my energy and time trying to figure out why I'm in a particular storm. Because it, it could be actually a hybrid. There could be multiple reasons why you're in a storm. The, it's not, not so important that you understand why you're in, your, in the storm so much as you know how to respond to it. And it doesn't matter why you're in it. This is our response. Lord, save me. I'm yours. It doesn't matter why you're in it. God, Christ, save me. I am yours. These men... We're going to learn lessons about faith. And you learn those lessons by going through a storm. Now, you know, sometimes people talk about like, well, you know what happened? They got outside of the center of God's will. And so that's the problem. Do you think these men were outside God's will? No. They're absolutely in God's will. That's why they're in the storm. They are exactly where Jesus wants them to be because he plans on teaching them and instructing them. You see, it is in life's storms that we learn some of the most important lessons. Now, I don't like storms. I don't, my kids don't like storms. I don't like storms necessarily when they're outside. I don't like storms when I have to face them emotionally. I don't like storms in the church. I don't like storms in the neighborhood. I don't like storms in my family relationships. I don't like storms going on in my head when I can't seem to get all these things figured out. 
I don't like storms, but it's in the storms of life that we learn some of the most important lessons. We learn in storms truth about ourselves. We learn just how powerless we really are. We find out that we are rather limited in our resources. Think about it. We spend all this time trying to just make everything just right, right? We want everything just calm and nice and easy, right? And then all of a sudden, an accident, an injury, bad health reports, something happens, and it hits. We feel that seismos, that shaking. And what happens is it takes us to a point where we realize, I am nothing apart from God. I need him fully. We have a tendency to think of ourselves too highly and God too lightly. Storms have a way of teaching this about us. Let me tell you something else about storms. They teach us that we are prone to make idols out of resources, money, our own security, our ability, our stature in this community. And what happens is that we get so fixed and focused on that, about who we are and who knows us and, and what kind of influence we have, we turn these things into idols. And God has to strip us from idols so that we will worship the one true God. You see, it's in the storms of life we learn truth about ourselves. Let me tell you something else we learn in storms. We learn truth about the Lord. We would learn truth about God that we would never learn apart from the storms. For instance, we learn just how powerful he is. These men are forever changed because now they know that Jesus is fully capable of calming even the most significant of storms. They learn of his power, and that's what we learn. But we also learn when we go through storms that God is purposeful. You may be going through a storm right now. It is not without reason. It is not without a God-intended effect. He has a purpose in it. He wants to develop you, mature you, strengthen you, train you, take you to levels of love in your relationship with him and depth of faith that will only come as a result of these storms. And so what we find is that it's like the choreography of heaven. God orchestrates and brings even difficulties because without trials and stresses and even failures, we would not learn truth about God and about Jesus and about following him. And so You need to know that storms are a part of the process of your spiritual growth, and they are inevitable. You cannot shield yourself from them. I don't care how much money you make. They will come, and they come with a purpose to bring you closer to him whom you say, I am following. You know, without storms, what happened is that we'd end up... We've got these really self-centered, proud, very flat-dimensioned people. But it's the storms, as difficult as they are, God makes us by breaking us. I tell you, I've been through storms. I, I didn't like it in the process. Hurt, pain, didn't know how it was going to work out, sends you into emotional turmoil. But God makes the man and the woman through the storms. That's what he's doing with these men right here. You see, these disciples are on this gradual process of learning how to trust him. And part of the reason Jesus is sleeping on the boat is because they needed to trust him that even if he's sleeping, he's still sovereign and in control. And this lesson is going to have carryover value because one day Jesus is going to ascend to the Father where he is presently. And they need to know that this same Jesus who's in control on the boat is in control reigning in heaven. And we can trust him. And they are learning these lessons and they're learning now. 
And so R.C. Ryle, excuse me, J.C. Ryle, he wrote this about afflictions. He said, by affliction, he teaches us many precious lessons, which without we should never learn. By affliction, he shows us our emptiness and weakness, draws us to the throne of grace, purifies our affections, weans us from the world. He makes us long for heaven. It's in the resurrection morning we shall say, it is good for me that I was afflicted, and we shall thank God for every storm. Let me give you a real simple principle. it'll, It'll help you tremendously when you go through storms. A vertical perspective will keep us from a horizontal panic. A vertical perspective will keep us from a horizontal panic. When you start freaking out and you're fragmenting, your brain's going everywhere and like, ah! Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. He is God and he is Lord over all. Friends, bottom line, Jesus is the only source of peace. He is, is. He is the only source of peace. Now, he may calm the storms or he may not. But he always can calm the storm in us when we simply trust him. Hey, if God is for us, who can be against us? We follow him. Where is your faith? Our faith is in him. And he is the bedrock of our salvation. He gives us stability to our souls. You know, when you take kids to the doctor and they have the, the little lady or the doctor or the nurse that has the shots, you know, and the needle. And you ever seen that, how the kids you know, react to that? You know, they just like start, ah, all, every muscle in their body just, it's all tense. They're screaming and they're pulling things. And, they, and you're like, oh, hey, I, this is going to help you. And they're like, what? This is crazy. They're going to help me? They're going to poke me? They're going to bleed? I'm, I, the best I get out of this is a Band-Aid? No, this is a bad deal. I'm going to throw a fit right here. Okay? And so we try to calm them down because we know that that shot is going to help them. It's for their ultimate good, right? It'll either help them overcome whatever illness they're facing or it's going to prevent one from coming. Now, as adults, we're a little older. Now, I, I'll confess, I still don't look when they give me a shot. I'd rather not. Okay? I don't do it, and I just hope I get a little Superman Band-Aid out of the deal. Okay? I'm not going to let the nurse see my little tears. Okay? I'm just kidding. Are we done yet? Okay, but I know, I've learned this, that that shot is for my ultimate good. There's something that needs to put in, be put in me so I can truly overcome what I'm about to face or am facing. Friends, God wants to take us from the point of little kids throwing fits because the doctor is not trying to just inflict pain for the sake of inflicting pain. I'm a doctor. I'm supposed to make your life miserable. No, that's not how it works. I'm a doctor and I want to help you. And you may not understand this right now, but this will truly help you later. That's Jesus and the storm. I'm going to pull you through this. I will either take you to glory soon or perhaps later, and I'll see you through this storm, and you will grow as you follow me. You know, you just never know when you're going to be in your next storm. In November, this past November, when Mike Harden and I were heading off to India, on our mission trip to go visit the Benjara people and do some ministry there. I think a lot of you know this. We, when we got on this plane in Houston, they would take off and fly around the world to get there. Uh, we had some trouble. We, uh, I, I, I point out to Mike that we've never got past 5,000 feet, and there is like this like little tremor to the plane. And it's like, this ain't normal, right? And, and then um, we had the experience of 
I think it was like passenger in front of us that was looking out the window. We were kind of sitting by the wing there. And like, ah, there's something coming out of the wing right there. And I'm like, what? And Mike and I are like looking. And sure enough, I've never seen this before. Fuel is just shooting out the wing. I'm like, whoa. Well, that's, I'm sure that's not supposed to happen. And then, uh, and I'm, I'm looking at Mike because he's, he's the world traveler, right? You know, I'm just from Waco, you know, I don't really leave Texas very often. So I'm like, whoa, what's going on here? And then they got a stewardess intention. And, you know, I'm, I'm always looking and seeing how the stewardess reacting things. Okay, I've been through turbulence, but if the stewardess is still serving like little soft drinks and little pretzels, I know everything's cool. Okay. Well, she goes and looks out the window and, her eyes were just big as saucers. <gasps> she starts signaling. I mean, she broke all protocols. She's signaling the other stewardess on the other side of the plane. They go, they look out there. <gasps> There's something going out. There's, going, there's something going wrong on that side of the plane, too. That's thing good. And then, then this, they call another, and then it's like the head uh, stewardess comes down. She grabs a phone, and they're, they're communicating. I take it with a pilot. And I'm like, whoa. Now, long story short, we made it. I, I guess you probably figured that out. And we were... Uh, we had to make a little emergency landing after we dumped all the fuel back down in Houston, got to see the fire trucks there, and, and everything's fine. I mean, we were delayed a little bit on our trip, but, but we were fine. I tell you this because sometimes even looking at the stewards, the people that should know better, still might go into a panic. When you go through a storm, even if the people that should know better, perhaps are further along, been on lots of flights, been on this journey a lot, and they're starting to panic. <sighs> I don't know. You and I, we look to Jesus. He's going to see us through this storm. He is still on his throne and he is in control. See, when you're flying into trouble, look to Jesus for he is our peace and our strength. And we will find it when we're trusting him. There's a man by the name of Horatio Spafford. Some of you are familiar with him. He was a very successful lawyer in Chicago. In 1873, he faced the storm of his life. In 1871, he has, his only son died. And then, of course, there was this great fire in Chicago. He had a lot of real estate, and he lost a ton of money on that. And yet this man, a very committed Christian, he was very involved in the work of D.L. Moody. He, uh, he wanted to help Moody in his crusade that he was running over in England, bringing the gospel there. And so... What he did is he got tickets for him and his family, his wife, their four daughters, himself. They're going to get on a boat, cross over the Atlantic and go and help Moody and support him on his endeavors of proclaiming the gospel throughout England. Well, right before he had to leave, he got this urgent business that he absolutely had to tend to. So he, he sent his wife and the four daughters on their way. He said, I'll join you in a few days. I just got to take care of this. Well, that ship that his wife and his four daughters were on collided with another vessel in the middle of the Atlantic, and within minutes, that ship went down. Now, the news was out. The ship went down, but nobody actually knew what had happened. And he had to wait several days, and then finally a cable came from his wife, and it simply said this, saved alone. He just dropped everything. The only thing that's important now is, is to go and get and be with my wife. Gets on a boat. He asked the captain to tell him approximately where that ship went down and where his four girls died. So as they're making their way, he finally was notified. We believe this is right about the general area where this happened. Horatio Spafford went up on the deck, stood there, and he took out a piece of paper, and he wrote these words. 
When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. He rooted his security and his hope in Christ and his atonement. But not only looking back at what Christ has done and finding peace and calm in the midst of his present storm, he looked ahead to the shores where his daughters had already safely landed. And he wrote these words. O Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. And I don't think it would be trite to say that Horatio Spafford saw Jesus in the boat with him in the midst of his storm. So friends, there is one who can calm us and calm our storms. It is Jesus. And he simply says, follow me. Trust me and live. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for this amazing passage of Scripture. Lord, would it be forever alive in our hearts and our minds and in our lives. Your Son is the living God. We can trust Him with all things. And so, Father, if there is someone here today who has never put their faith in Jesus, or, put their, or perhaps they put their faith in a counterfeit Jesus, they didn't understand just how powerful He is, this Savior who saved us from our sin. Would they pray with me and say, Lord, I get it. Today you have broken through my heart and my mind. I understand that to follow you is to put you into first place for you're so well deserving of for you are God. So I turn from my sin and I trust you as my savior and I follow you as Lord. And so, Lord, may that be the reality of all of us. Would we be renewed in our faith? Would we have a greater confidence that your son, Jesus, the risen savior, is the Lord of our life? We can follow you and experience life in depth, full of joy, because we're trusting you. And we can say, it is well with my soul, no matter what circumstances we face. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.